Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. I've been thinking a lot about biblical literacy and about how people learn about the story of the Bible as a whole and the particulars about various types of literature in the Bible. And I'm curious what you think. How do you learn the story of the Bible? Is it in church on Sunday mornings? Is it in an adult Bible study? Or maybe it's on your own or through podcasts? How do you connect the dots between the stories or between sermon series that follow the church calendar? Some of these questions have moved me to start asking scholars why certain small, obscure, or hard-to-interpret books are relevant for the modern church today, and I am so pleased to introduce you to this week's guest. We get to sit with Reverend Dennis R. Edwards, Ph.D., who is the dean at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago to talk about First and Second Peter. I was curious about these books for a couple reasons. First Peter has an uncomfortable collection of household codes that swirl around the word submit. And Second Peter, well, it's just completely different. With a cursory reading, it sounds like doom and gloom for everyone. Plus, these are letters addressed to a particular community or collection of communities in a real time and place. So how do we interpret them, much less apply them to our modern church context now? Luckily, Dr. Edwards agreed to help us out. He has written commentaries on 1 Peter and is working on one for 2 Peter and Jude. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation around these two small letters that do not get much attention. We will start first with Dr. Edwards' own context growing up and how he eventually decided to focus professionally on New Testament studies. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. My context, particularly my church and home context, very much influenced uh, my pursuit of biblical studies. I grew up in uh, Queens, New York, and when I was about 10 years old, my dad started taking us. There were seven children altogether, but my two oldest half-brothers did not live with us most of the time, off and on. So five of us, four at the time, my youngest sister wasn't born yet, (laughs) but we started going to Sunday school. And I don't know to this day why he just decided to start taking us to Sunday school. My mother did not go, but we went to the church of her childhood, uh, uh, the same denomination, which was a fringe denomination that would call itself holiness. A lot of denominations call themselves holiness, but we did not believe in a trinity. We believed there was Jesus only, and you had to be baptized in the name of Jesus, not the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Hmm. You also had to speak in tongues as not a second blessing like in Pentecostalism, but as the evidence that you are a Christian. So if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't even a Christian. If you weren't baptized, you weren't a Christian. So the formula was you repent, then you get baptized, then you speak in tongues. So I went as a little kid, and so that's all I knew. I didn't know there were Christians that believed anything differently. That was the only church I knew. But I went to Sunday school. I went to church. 
services, long services. We spent almost all day in church on Sundays and very much just believed what I was taught. And I learned a lot of Bible verses. I could recite a lot of scripture that was encouraged in our church for you to just even offer a recitation of scripture as a, as a praise during the worship services. People would just cite a verse or something. So by the time I uh, got to college and I started meeting other Christians, my denomination did not even encourage us to go to college, thought that you know higher education would take away our faith. So I started meeting other Christians. And so the very long story short is when my mom passed away during my um, college years, the uh, church of my childhood didn't think that she had a genuine faith because she had not come to that church. And she, mm-hmm. in fact, rejected that that church. So I started my own inquiry as to why the church of my childhood thought it was the only right way when I was meeting all these other Christians from different denominations. And uh, and I got pretty upset with people throwing Bible verses around or attempting to explain things in the Bible without showing me how I could know those things. So they were telling me, but they weren't showing me. So I said, well, I need to learn these things for myself. So eventually I went to seminary, but even after seminary, I, I did well in seminary. And, uh, but a few years after seminary, I, I still felt like I just had this drive to learn more and to be able to handle the Bible the best I could. So that took me to do doctoral studies. So that's where I went. I wasn't even thinking I'd be a professor. It was just that I wanted the personal development. And since I went part-time, I couldn't afford to go full-time. I said, hey, this is my work. I'll go do my ministry job. I also taught school. I taught math and chemistry. I was a dad and a husband. And then I would take a class. And so I, that's what Goodness. filled out my life for several years. <laughs> Did you study science then for undergrad? When you went yes. to undergrad, it was uh, for chemistry or? Well, chemical engineering. So I have oh, okay. a degree from, from Cornell University in chemical engineering. But I didn't really work as an engineer out after uh, college. I worked as an intern with Union Carbide, but I wound up becoming a math and chemistry teacher. And I liked it. I was a, I was a good teacher. Yeah. When you first started getting to know Christians who had Mm -hmm. different ideas about the Bible and Jesus, even than you did, did that create excitement and curiosity? Did it create almost a a crisis of faith or how, what were those interactions like for you? What a wonderful question. I actually want I actually want to write a theological memoir because I think there's so much to you really hit something right there when you asked about it, because many people who have asked me the question, they purely think in terms of doctrine. They would say, well, when did you start believing the right thing? And they would get all anxious. But you asked the right question and that you asked what was going on inside of me. And uh, I really did struggle. I was at a place where I thought God didn't love me because I wasn't speaking in tongues and being the scientific, being the scientific kind of kid that I was, I wanted something very objective and very clear. And they were teaching me something that I felt was subjective, that I would say anything that popped into my head, that whatever, you know, words that were coming out my mouth were, were, were this new language I was supposed to learn and nothing against Pentecostalism. I don't mean to be making any sweeping statements. Just in my own experience, I thought I was going to be experiencing something very objective They were giving me something that felt very subjective. So I thought, I'm not speaking in tongues. I'm trying to manipulate my my words in a certain way. 
So I thought, well, God's not giving me the gift the way people keep talking about it. So why not? What's wrong with me? So when I met these other Christians, there was a little bit of a crisis, but first it started with them. They, they were having Bible study and I would be in the Bible study and I'd be telling them things I learned from my childhood and they were trying to correct me and correct me. And I didn't think that I, you know, I didn't think I was needing to be corrected. I thought we were just having a conversation about the Holy Spirit, about God. So over time, I did have this sort of crisis. I started thinking, well, the church of my childhood is, might be wrong. <laughs> and then that, so, but then it became freeing because I thought, oh, yeah. I only have to believe in Jesus. I don't have to keep working for this thing. And that really took a load off of my shoulders. And I, I felt almost physically lighter when that realization hit me. I was a sophomore. I remember it got too long a story, but I remember the moment even where I felt like, Ooh, wait a second. You know, <laughs> if I believe in this Jesus, then I don't have to work for God's approval yeah. in any kind of, you know, with some kind of miraculous sign. So yeah, I got to that. That took a while though. It took a couple of years. Yeah. There's something about, the church of your childhood, you right when when something shakes that pillar, it's such a formative pillar. You know, it shakes in, pretty indeed. deep into indeed. us. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I'm watching, and maybe it's mostly young white Christians, but I'm watching all this stuff, and I'm on Twitter a bit, and everyone's talking this deconstruction, and it causes this anxiety and such. I mean, we're always deconstructing, we're always yeah. trying to figure out. But that's it. But but you just hit it. It's the church of our childhood formed us in a certain way. And then as we mature, there are some things we, we grab hold of, some things we leave behind. And sometimes we leave the whole thing behind and move on to something else. Right. I, to me, that's healthy. Yeah. This exact conversation has been coming up recently with several of my colleagues. And I have several jobs, so my colleagues are spread around the globe. Some are ministers, some are professors, some are artists, some work with 16 to 23-year-olds, and some work with the 30 and older crowd. Some are parents with kids who are themselves re-examining their faith. And like Dr. Edwards, I cannot help but think the process is healthy, especially when it comes with a closer examination of scripture and not just an offhanded throw it all away. And I will say, I've said this for years now, for me, going to the land of the Bible and starting to attach reality to the words of scripture was the best and most helpful way to figure out what to reject from traditions of Western Christianity and what to have more faith in. As I talk with Dr. Edwards, I cannot help but think of other guests on this podcast who went through a similar time of questioning, and instead of walking away completely, they dove deeper into the text. We as a church need to figure out how to help people do that well, right? Speaking of Dr. Edwards, he said he went to seminary and then on to do PhD work, but that it was mostly for his own personal development. He ended up focusing on Greek and New Testament. So how did that happen? Well, interesting. I was a good Greek student during my seminary years. This would be the late 80s. I'm kind of old. And I did really well in Greek, but I never thought I could do a PhD. I mean, that seems so elusive to me and, you know... But a few years after, it's probably about four years, yeah, four years after I graduated, I got into a program in New York City where I could go part time. And I really thought I might study Old Testament. That was really what my passions were. But I still had to take more classes in Greek and Hebrew. 
But then life circumstances, we moved to Washington, D.C., and I started in a church ministry down there. And I wound up having to restart my program at the Catholic University of America. And they required so much more for an Old Testament degree. You had to take several Semitic languages that I said, well, for time's sake, I'm going to focus on New <laughs> right. Testament. So it really was a pragmatic decision because I was doing well in Hebrew. I was doing well in Greek. And my my interests and passions were in the Old Testament. But I wound up, you know, because you have to, you focus. Although my Old Testament professors would always say, look, your degree is in biblical studies. He's mm-hmm. a, and he and one of them would say, you, you need to be able to teach from both Testaments, which I have done in my lifetime. I love that. It's I I often want to tell my New Testament friends because I am an Old Testament scholar, but I'm, ah. I'm like, you know, lucky for you, the people you love and the writings you love to study all come back to this to my testament. So Amen. 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 <laughs> so you're, you're never actually all that far away from the Old Testament. And and we should not be. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so we are going to talk about first and second Peter, of mm-hmm. which you've written about and published on both of these. Yes. And before we get into the details in these two small little books, I'd love for you to talk mm-hmm. about like what genre of literature this is. And right. maybe we can even say, like, is epistle something different than letter? And how do we understand mm-hmm. letter? Right, right. Well, you know, it was probably more than a century ago. The scholar Adolf Deisman, he made a distinction between epistle and letter. That's happening less now in scholarly circles. However, we will distinguish types of letters. You know, mm. something's a personal letter uh, or thank you letter. There are subgenres, you might say, of, of what a letter entails. Our New Testament letters follow the same format of a Greco-Roman communication, the stylistically. So in a sense, what we have might be uh, at times longer than a typical Greco-Roman letter, but they follow the same format. So I tend, when I'm teaching classes, I'll I'll say letter and mention briefly the uh, distinction that used to be between a letter and epistle. Hmm. So there's a formula kind of built in to the type of literature yes, that it yes. is. Yes, it is. And uh, and I like that you said formula. You're the Old Testament person, so you know form criticism comes from the Old Testament uh, studies in that if there's an oral tradition, you know, lurking behind these written words, you can pick it up in the style of how things go. That's true in narratives, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so, but in letters, the it's the uh, written form that, that uh, betrays what it is. You've got the name of the person writing or the person's writing. You got the name of the people who are going to get the letter uh, mentioned right at the top, you know, and uh, and then you've got greetings at the end. But even right at the top, there'll be that A to B, you know, Dennis to Cindy, and there'll be uh, a thank you. There'll be uh, some recognition of God or the gods if it was a pagan letter. Right. And then launch into the thing I really want to talk to you about. So there is that kind of movement that you can discern in pretty much every letter. Now, I will say on the side, we have some writings that we lump in as letters that don't fit that formula, like First John, like Hebrews. They just mm-hmm. jump right in and we don't see who's writing or to whom they're they're writing. And even First John, I'd rather I should say James, starts out with a very letter form, you know, James to these uh, 12 tribes of the diaspora. But then you have 
no ending, no formal ending. It's like a mic drop. He says, little children, I mean, he said, that's John says, little children, keep yourselves in idols. James says, you restored the wanderer and, and, you know, save their soul from death. Boom. And he's out. And you think, wow, (laughs) that's not the way we would normally wrap up a letter. So we have, we have some variations on the theme, right? But you do have a basic theme. I don't exactly know which order to ask these next Mm. two questions. So maybe I'll pose both (laughs) questions and you tell me which one makes the better sense in which order to do it. I wanted to talk about authorship of first and second Peter. Like, do we Mm. know it's the same author? Uh, They have very different styles and very different content. So there's Mm -hmm. that element. But Mm -hmm. I also want to talk a little bit about what do we actually know about Peter's life after the (laughs) Jerusalem Council? Because when we read Acts and the Gospels, Peter is all over the place. I mean, we are in love with Peter and his stubbornness and bullheadedness. Mm -hmm. And then after the Jerusalem Council, we get a whole bunch of Paul and a a lot less of Peter. So Mm -hmm. what do we know about what happens to Peter? Yeah, we keep robbing Peter to pay Paul. I've (laughs) noticed that I think, well, both questions uh, fit well. I'm not sure which one takes precedence, but the life of Peter is more in story and legend than it is in the canon. We don't even know how he's connected to the people who receive those letters, one Mm. and two Peter. And you're right, Paul overshadows. We, We see Peter a little bit outside in Galatians, which some scholars think is Paul's first letter, or at least early on. And in that letter, he's fussing at Peter, right? He has this altercation with Peter. So we don't really see him very much. And I think that's why there's one reason, not the only reason, but one reason why there's some mystery surrounding the authorship, which is, you know, kind of your other question. So we're right. We don't know. We don't know what happens to Peter and we can only speculate. And we have church tradition, of course, that takes him to Rome. And that's that's where we tend to heavily rely upon that tradition that Peter ministers out of Rome and is uh, martyred there in Rome under Nero. As a quick aside, when I teach the geography of Acts and we trace the movements of Paul, we see he has a well-worn path through the southern part of the Roman province of Asia, or Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. Geographically in Acts, there is a large portion of land in the northern part of Asia Minor, and as a tradition, it has been said that Peter went there, complementing some of the work that Paul was doing. They are contemporaries, after all, but we don't know for sure. So this leaves us to make educated guesses based on extra-biblical writings and church traditions. Peter and Paul do end up in Rome at about the same time and are both martyred during Nero's reign. What else about Peter and his writings do we know? We don't know much about his ministry, like why these folks? Why why those folks up in Asia Minor and in yeah. Turkey? Is he, why is he writing to them? Did he have a role in their evangelism? We just don't know the answer to that. Hmm. So it does raise the questions of authorship. Dealing with First Peter, there's a divide. It's hard to say. I've, I've seen scholars who, who thought Peter didn't write it, who are willing to say he did, and then some who thought he did and now think he didn't. And part of it is because the style of writing is pretty good Greek and heavily reliant on the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And there's some question as, do we really expect a Galilean fisherman to have right. written such a good, good 
work. Yeah. And then there's more subtle things that I, I mean, won't get into detail on, but there's other issues that are raised. Yet there's this resonance with what we know of the canonical gospel picture of Peter that seems to be present in the letter, in some places very obviously, in other places more subtly. So there's been no real good reason not to say he's he's the author, but it's a fair question to ask. Yeah. Uh, partly because in context, we know that the Christians up there in Asia Minor started to face, I would say, more than harassment, you know, straight out persecution by the second century. So some scholars think that's the context we have, where we have straight out persecution, second century, which means then it's not Peter writing that. But some of the scholars who've been doing bigger commentaries like my friend Craig Keener, he did a big, a big one with Baker on First Peter, and he he makes a strong case for why Peter is the author. So you'll see these things debated. Second Peter, to be honest with you, <laughs> there's fewer people willing to debate <laughs> that Peter wrote Second <laughs> Peter. I mean, honestly, it is so different, as you said. Stylistically, it's close to Jude in terms of style. It has an apocalyptic feel to it. There is a recollection of the transfiguration, but it's it doesn't have to be Peter's own words. I, one of the one of the ways that some one scholar, I'm thinking of particular, Gene Green has a big book called Vox Petri, the Voice of Peter. He thinks like the way some scholars think about John's writings as a Johannine circle. He says maybe there's a Petrine circle where you have a Peter influence for sure, and then in that community, some are expressing his theology, and maybe that's what's happening in Second Peter. There, it's an outgrowth of his ministry in a way. That's hard for some evangelical Christians because since his name is on there, they would want it to be by Peter. But it is a hard one to reconcile with a bunch of other things going on. Something we actually didn't get into here is issue of scribes. We know there are authors, say Peter, and scribes who wrote down the author's words. For example, 1 Peter 5.12 says, Through Sila, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written you briefly. So a question that lingers in scholarship is how much freedom the scribes have to elevate the language of the author. Did they write word for word, or did they have the freedom to stylize the letter a bit? And when it comes to the elevated Greek of First Peter, we see blatantly different styles of writing in Second Peter. A colleague of mine says it's bad Greek, just flat out wrong. So the ideas of there being a group of disciples of Peter who followed him and learned from him and wrote in his name is actually not a challenging thing to believe. After all, we know people did that with Paul and with John as well. If we continue examining the context of these two letters, we should get to the Roman context. Dr. Edwards already mentioned the persecution facing Christians in the Roman province of Asia. So I asked him to assume it's the Apostle Peter writing First Peter, a letter provoked by something. So what events or context necessitates a response to these Christians in this particular location? First, let me just say how awesome it is that you recognize that letters are contextual and that they're written for a reason. 
Although some Bible the readers podcast think that, is context matters. <laughs> hey, exactly, exactly. I mean, some people think these letters just popped out of nowhere. So, but it is, it does seem clear that there is, and I used the word earlier, harassment. There's something happening with these Christians that they are under threat. So, and the question is, is it formalized threat, which might push it to a second century context, or is it a more random collection of harassment and threatening behaviors mm. that are coming from their neighbors, which then it doesn't have to be any particular time period that could be happening. Uh, well, let's see, at least within the first three centuries of the church, right, right. before Constantine. Right. So you have very likely, I would say, likely this first century or or even mid, right, first century context, if Peter's the one writing it, where I would argue that there are Gentiles who have become Christians and that has now created a wedge with their neighbors who have seen them change. Peter says at one point, they don't understand that you no longer, he uses this phrase that you don't run with them, which is actually the way mm -hmm. when I grew up, we used to say that same kind of phrase, you're gonna go run with your friends. And yeah. so he literally says to run with that, you don't run with them anymore. And so there's a sense of you have, cre there's a wedge because of their faith, that's created. That wedge might even be behind why Peter refers to them with this diaspora language, that they are people who have been uh, pushed to the margins because their faith has created this wedge with their neighbors. So their neighbors harassed them. He uses words like slander. He, so there's a sense that they have, that they're feeling this, this uh, tension of, of being um, you know, harassed by neighbors. And Peter writes to encourage them fundamentally. I would say the letter is generally one of, of encouragement as to how to hang in there. In fact, hang in there might be too loose a euphemism. It might be how to survive mm -hmm. when your neighbors either don't understand at best or, or against you at worst. So it's a letter about survival. It is in this context of tension and harassment that we see a community that has noticed that the Christians are acting differently and not participating in civic celebrations that start with bowing down to idols or worshiping Caesar or a group of people gathering together in people's homes and therefore not making a public display of their worship. To this Christian community, Peter gives some amazing advice. Live in a way that does not create problems with your neighbors. This just happens to come out in a super cringeworthy language of submit. Submit to authorities, submit to your master, submit to your husband. Next week, I'm going to ask Dr. Edwards to untangle some of that submit language for us. And then we will have to get to that strange little apocalyptic book of 2 Peter. This week, I am pleased to thank Tammy O'Banion, Linda Overall, and Carol Lloyd for making this conversation about Peter's epistles possible. They are part of the Patreon team who has stepped up and contributed to sustain this project. I cannot do it without them. So thank you all. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is so good to be with you, and I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you.